Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 198, and today's guest is Eden Fulgo, founder and CEO of Mobot. The world needs more risk takers, big thinkers, and problem solvers that are willing to take on the really hard problems that need to be solved. As you'll hear from this interview, the world needs more Edens. She started her first company in high school, which was focused on improving energy and water access in the developing world. She then left Princeton to pursue an opportunity as a Teal Fellow, as the program was just beginning, and Eden is now building a company that is taking an innovative approach to mobile app testing. Her company is called Mobot, and they are using robots, I'm talking real robots, to test mobile applications. This was a problem that she witnessed firsthand as a product manager and decided to build a company around solving this problem. The company is backed by leading investors like Primary Venture Partners, Newark Venture Partners, Bling Capital, RRE Ventures, and Y Combinator. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like words of encouragement to others on taking risks and starting a company, Eden's background growing up and the creation of her first company, Sun Saluter, and the progress she made building it, the story behind her decision to leave Princeton to become a Teal Fellow, a deep dive into Mobot, and how they are taking a much more effective approach to mobile testing, why she decided to build a company as a solo founder, advice on getting traction from the media, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is an employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our target audience of professionals in the tech industry. A subscription with VentureFizz includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Eden. Eden, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. So I'm excited to talk to you about your career because the more I was spending time learning about your background, the more I was just like totally blown away at what you've accomplished so far. And it made me come to the conclusion that the world needs more Edens. And what I mean by that is it was very apparent that you're a big thinker, you're a problem solver and a risk taker. So what words of encouragement would you give to others on, you know, taking that leap of faith to uh, take a risk, start a company, thinking big, solving a hard problem, you know, more people getting involved in STEM, you know, those types of things is what I think our world needs. Yeah, I would say that there's nothing about me that, you know, I, I grew up with, I think, exposure to STEM programs, and I grew up with a chance to participate in extracurriculars in school. But there's nothing particularly about my background or my skill set that, you know, I don't think anyone else could also have. And I think that's important to mention because I think really what matters is having that understanding of, hey, I want to go after this project. Um, I'm going to go online, Google, you know, something that I'm passionate about, learn about that space, figure out what opportunities are there. And you kind of just go down this rabbit hole of research and persistence, and that eventually leads you to a place where you feel inspired to take action and start something. And so in my case, that was you know all the science competitions that I did in high school and middle school and before that, and sort of an early interest in engineering and making products that I think has really shaped my life today. Um, but it's not like I came out of high school knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't know that I wanted to be you know, a product manager. I didn't know that I wanted to be a founder and CEO. I feel like all of that happened through 
a conglomeration of you know small childhood events that were very influential to me. Um, and so I really want to emphasize that because I do think that that means there are many other people out there that you know have a similar background to me or different set of experiences that you can use that experience and leverage that to you know become a founder, become a CEO, um, and and really start a project that matters to you. Well, that, and that's a perfect segue. So let's talk about your background. So where did you grow up, and what were those you know some some of those memories that did trigger this way of thinking? Yeah, um, so I grew up in Calgary, Canada, um, and, you know, pretty normal upbringing. Uh, Calgary's the home of the winter 1988 Olympics. I think that's like most people, they're either like, oh, I've heard of Banff or I've heard of the Olympics. And so there wasn't a lot going on, right? It wasn't, you know, it was a city of a million people. So there were sort of like normal programming. I went to a normal high school. Um, you know, I was in the gifted program, all that stuff. Um, but I think from a very early age, like I leaned very naturally towards building things, making things, because I like solving problems. And a lot of that, you know, started with an interest in science and, you know, answering questions. And I was very inquisitive. But I think growing up that then manifested itself in research projects. And I competed in science fairs and engineering competitions and robotics competitions. And that, I think, gave me a foundational understanding of like, oh, I can make a thing to solve a, a problem. Um, and I think that's kind of how I've approached a lot of the career milestones afterwards was, um, you know, I felt hungry and ambitious. And so I actively sought out like after school clubs, competitions, I Googled online for scholarships. Um, and a lot of that was just like, I wanted more than what I felt like Calgary was providing for me. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I was very fortunate to have a very stable and supportive childhood. Like my family, um, you know, my parents were originally born in Vietnam, but were ethnically Chinese. And, you know, after the fall of Saigon um, in the seventies, you know, my, my family, my entire family came over to Canada as refugees and basically started from scratch. Right. And, and so, you know, to what my parents were able to do, like create this middle-class childhood for me, they, they bought a house. My sister and I were taken care of. We got to take violin lessons. And like, you know, my mom drove me around after school and picked me up and, you know, went to science club and all that stuff. Like, I was so lucky to have that stable platform. But I think that work ethic from my parents was also very influential to know that they kind of clawed their way up from nothing, learned English, made sacrifices. And for me, like, that was also a driving force that like, I really want to make their legacy count. And I think a lot of that does drive what I do today as well. That's awesome. Great story. And, you know, like, it, so my uh, dad was an entrepreneur and, you know, he grew up and this is, you know, he was born in 1943. So this is the era where there's electricity and water and houses. He didn't have any, no, no electricity and water. And, you know, he, same thing. He provided me with such a great foundation to be able to do great things hopefully afterwards, you know? So it's, uh, I, I can completely relate. Now along those lines, so you started a nonprofit in high school, uh, which when I was learning about this, it's it, it just, it's a really cool idea, project and something that you, you've carried on. So Sun Saluter, talk about that company, how you came up with the idea and what it does. Yeah, so in high school, um, I developed an interest in renewable energy. And I think for a lot of it, it was just, I was 
enthralled by this idea that you could just get energy from the sun. It seemed like magic. But at the time, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, solar energy was still pretty like prohibitive from a cost perspective. Um, it was actually expensive to buy solar panels and especially in developing countries, you know, if solar was already so expensive in the US, like you can't imagine how much, how difficult it was to sort of like think about cargo and logistics and getting something to, you know, East Africa or, you know, Southeast Asia or India or, or some of these other areas where a lot of social enterprises and nonprofits were starting to do community development work. And so I got really interested and exposed to that, um, you know, in throughout high school as a research project. And then as I entered college, um, you know, I, I went to fre uh, my freshman year, you know, I started at Princeton and during my freshman year, um, I had an internship from a professor, uh, you know, who let me go to Kenya to do research about renewable energy. And it was actually there where I connected the dots where this high school science project that I'd done around solar and how to optimize solar could actually be applied in the real world. Um, and so what I developed with the solar tracking technology and tracking means you're actually placing a solar panel on a mount that will rotate throughout the day to follow the sun. And so uh, this tracker technology that I developed was very low cost, didn't require any electricity. And you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, electricity or having this motor that would recalibrate a solar panel at different points during the day, it was very inefficient and costly. And so I developed this water dripping mechanism that would change the balance of the solar panel system to actually cause the solar panel to passively rotate throughout the day by changing the, uh, the center of gravity. And so, you know, that was an idea that I piloted in different areas. And, you know, after a few months of doing that, in around my sophomore year of college, I found out about this program called the Teal Fellowship. And it had launched in 2011 for the first time. And, you know, at the time it seemed a little crazy maybe that, you know, you could drop out of college and, you know, follow your passion and start an idea and start a project. Um, and I think that actually that experience for two years really shaped, you know, who I became and, and who I am now. Um, you know, learning to kind of operate without any constraints, without sort of a schedule in, in college and in high school. Um, and so that was, I think, you know, where I really started to work on Sun Saluter and grow Sun Saluter into a nonprofit. Um, you know, we realized that we were getting a lot of attention and inquiries from different organizations around the world. And so during my Teal Fellowship, I focused all my time on scaling out this nonprofit to, to make sure that we could host community development workshops and uh, you know, deploy solar panel trackers and the sun saluter technology in different places. Um, and so you know, after scaling that organization, I think it gave me a lot of experience um, you know, about what it's like to run a team, you know, scale an organization, um, you know, be a founder, and a lot of the skills that I've taken with me today as I started Mobot. Well, the other thing I thought was interesting was um, it, it's, it sounded like you brought this amazing idea to Kenya and you got great feedback. They were like, this is a really cool idea, Eden, but it's not really practical. And then you had, so you had to evolve your product to get product market fit for what the needs were. So I thought that was really interesting too, how you, you know, perfected the product to where it was something that was very impactful. I think that was actually my very first example in life of getting user feedback and exactly like you said, product market fit. 
you know, I showed up in as a freshman in college with this like, you know, beautiful idealized idea of like, I did a research project, now I'm just going to roll it out. And, you know, I think in that first trip to Kenya um, on my internship, I got all this feedback from villagers, from end users who were like, hey, this technology, you know, with the materials that you've used, like if the, the mechanical parts broke, we wouldn't be able to procure replacement parts. Maintenance is going to be a headache. What about children that are playing around the solar panel systems? You need something that is childproof. What if a goat walks by and knocks it over? There's all of these different aspects to rolling out a product and listening to your customers and end users. Whether you're building a business or you're building a nonprofit, a lot of those underlying principles are the same. And I think that was my first taste of it. Um, and I'm very grateful for that experience. I think, you know, people are very blunt and honest and it honestly leads to the most uh, iteration and the most improvement. So you already uh, gave some, a uh, little bit of insight to the, the Teal Fellowship, which, you know, in case people aren't familiar with that program, started by Peter Teal, who's a legendary entrepreneur. And he started this great idea of like, hey, instead of these brilliant minds spending time in a classroom, let's set them out to build companies. So it was like a two-year program and there was like a hundred K stipend to do this. Right. Is that correct? So how did you learn about it? And then like, Hey mom and dad, I'm at Princeton, but I'm just going to go do this fellowship thing. Like, like how, how is the feedback there? Yeah. Um, in that first year of the program, they were also figuring out, you know, what were they looking for in terms of outcomes? But I think the underlying principle here was that entrepreneurship can happen at a young age. And when you free people, when you free young entrepreneurs from the confines of, you know, uh, college and class and obligations, like what could they possibly innovate on and what could they achieve? And I think it was a very interesting experiment. And even the fellowship program has evolved today to very much focus on sort of the kind of like young entrepreneurs, like almost like pre Y Combinator, pre seed, uh, you know, seed stage series A type, uh, you know, entrepreneurs. And I think it's a, a great opportunity to if you give someone the right structure and guidance that they can you know start their own company and really build something meaningful um so yeah i was kind of in that pilot first class kind of a guinea pig um and i think you know members of the teal fellowship and you know even the team that built the teal fellowship in those early years have gone on to be vcs and entrepreneurs and so it's kind of in a way a different college experience and a different alumni network that we now have but I think like that underlying concept was very much like totally, you know, shaped who I am today and really inspired me to think outside the box. Um, it was definitely a challenging conversation with my parents, but I would say, you know, at that, at that point in my life already, they were kind of used to me being a little bit, you know, creative with my approach, right? I actually applied to Princeton. Um, without really telling them, I don't really think we've talked about college. Um, they wanted me to go to college, but in terms of like where I would apply, um, you know, where geographically should I be? Um, there wasn't, you know, they were very flexible and very supportive. Um, and so for me, I think they really saw that, hey, I was able to get myself into college. You know, it's probably fair that I should get to make the decision to take a leave of absence. It wasn't until much later when I officially decided I'm not going back that I think um, that's kind of when the conversation got more tense. But uh, 
I hope in the years since, and if my mom and dad are ever listening to this podcast, that they can also agree that hopefully they've seen that, you know, the things that I've achieved since, you know, maybe life would be different if I had a college degree, but I don't think it impeded me in any way. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, there's lots and lots of very successful entrepreneurs that do not have a four-year college degree. So uh, we don't even have to name some of the most famous ones. Uh, so what did you do after that? Yeah, so um, after working on Sun Saluter for a few years, I think it became clear that a lot of the work ended up being community development work and social work, um, which I think for me, having a love of product and engineering, um, you know, it became less about tinkering and inventing and more about sort of running and scaling an organization, which I realized that as someone who gets very homesick easily and doesn't like traveling a lot, um, you know, that was also kind of at odds at where with what, where I wanted to go with my career. And so it took, you know, a few months to kind of get things with Sun Saluter in order, handing it off to, you know, various local partners uh, that would continue to scale the work that we've done. But I also think that there is an element that I was mentioning earlier of solar has, the cost of solar has dropped so much in the last 10 years that at some point in most places, it actually, you don't really need a tracker anymore because you could just buy another solar panel uh, for cheaper than the cost of what it would take to, to add a tracker to an existing panel. And so Sun Saluter also was reaching a point where like at a very natural um, transition where I, it made sense for me to work on other things, but continue to run, you know, support programs for anyone that wanted to learn about Sun Saluter. We have a lot of open source content online that anyone can leverage. And all of that will continue to exist. And if there's ever any requests for workshops and you know, connecting with uh, organizations and partnerships. Uh, Sun Saluter still continues to do some of that work. It's kind of my passion project on the side. Um, but it made sense for me to then start focusing on, you know, if I want to build a life, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, that I was starting to go through this, you know, I met my wife, um, you know, we got married. And, you know, I think it was, I was just entering a different chapter of my life. Um, and so, you know, moving to New York and like, you know, working for a company, I, I ended up working at Palantir for two years and then a medical device startup for a year. But that allowed me to really hone my skills um, in product management, in understanding what it's like to work with engineering teams and also how larger companies operate. And I think those skills eventually helped shape who I am today in starting the company that Mobot now that I that I, that I founded a couple of years ago. All right. Perfect segue. Mobot. What led you down the path of starting Mobot? Like what were you seeing as the problem that you needed to solve? Yeah. So for Mobot, um, as a product, a product manager, I worked with a lot of engineering teams throughout the years. And what was a common theme was you'd have this web app that you made and you're like, okay, it's good to go. Like, you know, you run a set of automated tests on it on the web. And then, you know, generally it'll catch some bugs. It'll let you know what you have to fix. Engineers, you know, fix it, address it. And then you can push things out to the customer. And it all happens very quickly. This could be a matter of hours, a matter of days. But what I was seeing for managing equivalent mobile applications was first you have to like cut a release and then you ship it to Apple or Google and Apple's app store and Google play have to like approve your app. And then that could take 
one to two days, maybe up to seven or maybe even 14 days if you have issues with their terms of service or they ha someone hasn't looked at it or there's a bug. So there's a lot of delays with the way that an app on the mobile side gets released. And then I also found that it was actually very challenging to run automated tests. And that was because, you know, with a browser and with web apps, you can emulate in a browser, you can emulate Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and build these tests and pretend to be a mouse clicking on different things. But for a mobile app, um, because there's a lot of constraints to how native iOS and Android apps are made, uh, there's often no good testing framework for testing very common sense things like what happens if you're watching a video and then you get a phone call on your phone? Or what happens if you put your phone on airplane mode? Does the app actually still work? Um, if you enable Bluetooth or you get a push notification and you're not even in the app, those kinds of things, there's actually no way to automate that testing. And so believe it or not, the largest companies in the world that you probably you think of when you use an app, a mobile app as a consumer, all of those apps are likely tested by hand with someone just tapping on their phone. And if you can imagine the horrifying number of combinations of phones and iOS versions, iOS 14 rolled out, Android 11 rolled out, you know, there's a new Samsung Google phone, like I swear, like every few months, it's chaotic. It's a lot of manual work. And as a product manager, I was just sitting here thinking like, why is it so bad on mobile? But for web, it's like so easy. It's like two clicks and you emulated it and you're done. And so like, what could I do to solve this problem? And so I started exploring all these different approaches to mobile testing. And at the very end of the day, I concluded that there are no good existing solutions. Manual testing is the best way to test. So why not automate manual testing? And the way to do that is in a black box way. And that means that you assume that I, as a robot or as an end user, I don't have access to your source code. All I know about the app is what I see on the screen. And so I had this idea to use a robot to just look at the screen and do what it sees on the screen. And if you know, if you don't see a button, then the, there's something wrong with the app, and it's that's what a user would experience, and so that would be a bug. And so. I, I started researching like, oh, what, what, what do these robotics platforms look like? Who else has done this? And what I kind of observed was that there are robots out there that you could buy, but then you have to figure out how to program the robot and wrangle it for your tests. And you have to buy all the phones. And that is a lot of work. You could not possibly expect a software engineering team that whose specialty is not going to be in hardware or mechanical robots to buy their own robot, then maintain it for testing, and then also while building an app. And so I had this idea for Mobot, which is a service um, you know, where we can very efficiently take any mobile app out there, whether it's a mobile web app or a native mobile app, or even an SDK, a software development kit that you would use as a tool on a mobile app. Um, we can basically take all of the customer's data, download it onto a test device, and then teach a robot ourselves to execute the testing, set it up, maintain it, and then ship a delivery, a delivered test report out to the customer. So they just basically, if I had to summarize it, uh, give us app, get test report. Like that's the dynamic that I envisioned. Um, and I think that's the holy grail of mobile app development is you want that same rapid feedback that you get with web that just currently is not possible. And so when I saw that no one else was doing this, I knew I had to start Mobot. And that's what 
I thought fascinating about Mobot because when I first was introduced to you, started looking at your company, I'm like, okay, this is going to be some new way of automated testing suite. Um, but then I, I pause. I'm like, wait a second. I think she physically has robots testing the mobile apps, like a physical robot. So that's where it was like totally, oh my God, this is totally different than what I thought coming to, uh, to your company's website. Uh, so like, what are the, like, how do you get started with a company like this? Like, like, how do you get your first early adopter customers? And then like, who, what types of companies do you think would best benefit? I'm sure any company would that has any type of mobile app, but um, you know, is it the larger companies, midsize startups or all the above? A lot of our existing customers are growth stage startups and mid-market sized companies. And I think those are the companies where you have an app, people are using it. So there's high stakes here. Like if you ship a version of an app that's like going to crash, you know, your reputation is at stake. You know, app store reviews are at stake. Your app store rating is at stake. And, you know, that I think we want to target companies where the mobile app is a core part of their business and they're actively shipping to the app store, you know, once a week, every two weeks. And the mobile app is, is an important part of that process. Um, and so we found that, you know, with a lot of existing customers, there's basically two major kinds of testing that you should do as a part of your product development. There's regression testing, which is like the tried and true happy path. And then there's exploratory or usability testing, which is more creative and randomized. And you actually do want user feedback. Like, is this a good app? Like our robots can't answer that question, but we can tell you is, did the same thing that you did yesterday, can you still do that today? And what our vision is at Mobot is that we wanna basically take away all the rote, mechanical, boring work that you have to do of like, log into the app for the 47th time, check out with a shopping cart for the 80th time, and then log back out and then check a push notification. All that stuff that you expect to work let a robot do that work for you so that your manual QA team or your engineers or your product team can actually focus on using the app and consuming it and giving feedback on you know, what's different instead of having to like run through the checklist to do the same thing every time. And so that's really where we want to add value is we're not trying to like replace anyone's job. We just think that existing human talent should be redeployed for more important things as a part of the QA process. And how do, how do the robots do the testing? Like, do you have to, so, you know, company A's mobile app, how do you get them started with the actual testing process? Like what, how do you, what do you, how do you train the robot to know what to do? So as a part of our service, we will actually do that training and setup for you. The customer gives us an app. They can share it with us uh, using an existing distribution platform like App Center, Test Flight, Firebase, BitRise. Um, as long as they're able to get the build to our test device, we'll actually train the robot to go to that distribution platform, download the app like a human would, log in like a human would. You know, maybe you need to go into system settings or turn on the camera or turn on location settings like a human would. We can do all of that. Um, and we actually have a member of our team set up that testing uh, and, and train the robot the first time. But the nice thing about the platform we've built is that once we've set that baseline, uh, on the very first test, it's very easy to then basically repeat that protocol again and again across different devices, whether it's portrait or landscape, iPad or iOS or Android, 
and different versions of uh, you know, Android and iOS and large screen sizes and small screens, we're developing a platform where we can have an agnostic test plan that can be distributed across that device matrix to really ensure that the customer has a solid QA strategy. Very, very cool. Okay, so when you started this company, you you did something that so one you were part of uh, startup school at Y Combinator, then you went through Y Combinator, uh, but you did something that is very kind of against the grain. You are solo co- solo founder. I almost said co-founder. You are a solo founder, right? Which most people are like, what? You know, you need a co-founder, or you got to find your co-founder. So, um, talk about your experience. You know, uh, as a founder, solo founder again. And then, you know, going through that startup school program and then, you know, Y Combinator, the accelerator. Yeah. So when I, when I came up with the idea for Mobot, you know, I just started working on it and, you know, I started working on it by myself just simply because I didn't know anyone else who cared about that problem at the time. Um, But, you know, I wasn't closed off. Like if I met, you know, the right person, like who knows, maybe we could have been on that journey together, but A lot of it was just like, I'm naturally a very independent person. I had this idea, I started working on it, and it just so happened that I was the only person working on it. So it got to a point where I was thinking about this, you know, while I was, you know, a a full-time employee. And at a certain point, I just remember, you know, very distinctly that I like couldn't stop thinking about this anymore. And I was like, I think I want to quit my job to work on this. And so, you know, I had a discussion with my wife and I was just like, yeah, I have this idea for this, you know, mobile QA robot, uh, you know, testing service. Like, I think I want to do this. And she's like, okay, well, you got to know what the stakes are here. If you quit your job, this is how much you have in life savings. You know, how much runway is that? And then think about your 401k. You're not contributing to that anymore. How much lost compound interest is, is that? and think about the cost to our family. Like, are you actually passionate about this idea enough that you think it's worth all that sacrifice for our family and delaying our life plans and all this other stuff? And we had like a very long discussion about it. And I think it was actually very healthy because she basically was like, I support you in this, but you need to be so, so, so sure that this is worth it. And you have to know where you're going. There has to be a time box, like end date. If you run out of your own life savings, like she was very clear, she's not going to help me. She has her own job, but she's not going to bail me out. Like six months in, you better have either customers or a path forward or money that you've raised. Because if you don't have anything, you have to go back and get a job. And so I think having that forcing function really pushed me to act quickly. Um, And it made me sure that when I did quit my job that I knew sort of like roughly what my days would look like. I had this six month plan. I think it would have been very different if I just abstractly quit my job and then bumbled around my apartment. But it was like, I knew I was on a clock. Okay. And so that actually, I think, helped to really stay focused. It meant that I knew I had to like divide my time prototyping and, you know, thankfully, I had some experience writing code and building, you know, tinkering and building a prototype. And then I spent half my time doing sales. And so as a solo founder, you kind of have to touch everything. But I think the urgency combined with just like the known, you know, uh, skills that I did have and just like, you know, where I, the path that I had charted made it easier. And so when I signed up for a program like startup school, it was, it was just an extra sort of cherry on top that added more structure to my day. And then how about Y Combinator? Obviously it's, 
you know, the infamous program that's had so many great successes that's come from it. What, what did that accelerated teach you? Like, what was the biggest takeaways that you took from the program? Yeah. Um, so after doing startup school, um, I got into a different accelerator before Y Combinator that was actually run by Newark Venture Partners, um, which is one of our largest investors today. Um, and so they have like a very B2B focused program that helped with a lot of like sales preparation, like who is our ideal customer profile, helping me to understand and get all those pieces in order before I actually applied to YC. And so after, I would say that I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to get into YC without the foundational work that I did with the New York Venture Partners Labs program first. Um, and especially as a solo founder, it was literally just me. So I needed all this extra support that maybe as a normal founding team, you might not need. And so, you know, having our company go through two accelerators uh, before we raised our seed round, maybe that's anomalous, but I think, you know, that helped to make up for the fact that I was a solo founder. And so needed a little bit more prep time and, you know, just a little bit more finessing there. But yeah, I think going into applying for YC, um, we had some traction with customers. Um, and so I knew kind of like going into YC, our goal coming out of that was to raise a seed round. Um, and going through YC would teach us sort of the strategies behind what kind of growth do we need? How do you have the conversation? What are other pre-seed seed stage startups like and the sort of benchmarks that they have? And how do you approach go to market? How do you approach talking to customers? Um, and so a lot of that was very influential. It kind of felt like group therapy. We would go to these, you know, sessions every week and then we just kind of go in a, in a circle and update each other on what we were working on and like, hey, I'm having problems with like, you know, talking, getting this customer on the phone or they said this thing and some other founder in the group would tell you like, oh, actually, you know, I used this type of, you know, this tool to, to solve this other problem. And so you'd have like people helping each other out. And of course, all of this was like facilitated by the YC group partners who have a lot of experience and have seen basically every possible formula for how a seed stage company might come together. And so it was very helpful to have them guiding our conversations, guiding that process. But, you know, all of it was, of course, like you have to do the work yourself. And so I, um, you know, as a solo founder, which was a little bit different, most people were coming in groups like I had to like go. I flew to Mountain View every week because, you know, all of our robots and work was in New York. So I would fly to you know, San Francisco, go to Mountain View for these meetings, fly home immediately, get get on sales calls. Like, you know, I was working very, very long hours that I'm not sure I would be able to work today even. Um, but yeah, it was that early hustle, but it was also like the adrenaline, the excitement. It was all part of that journey, but it was definitely hard as a solo founder. I'm not sure I would encourage it actively, but I think that the real answer, you know, is that like, I, I didn't meet anyone else that wanted to be on the journey with me at that time. I've since met a lot of amazing people who have been founding employees. Um, you know, our VP of engineering, Jeremy, uh, is, is, you know, he's very influential in the vision of Mobot and what we do. Um, but like I met him after we raised the seed round much later on. And yes, he's absolutely a part of the founding team. But it was just in the early days where we had nothing and no money and no robots and just like a crappy web app, it was just me. That was just kind of coincidental. So, so let's talk about the current stage of the business. So, uh, you've raised over five million to date. Yeah. Uh, so, primary venture partners. You mentioned Newark 
Bling Capital, RRE Ventures, and you know, of course, Y Combinator. So, um, what's the current state of the business, and like, what are your plans ahead? And you know, the, the growth plans. So we're definitely still really trying to understand our product market fit and the value that we bring. Um, throughout 2020, the pandemic has been interesting to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were actually able to grow engagements with existing customers. Um, you know, we've tripled our revenue since the beginning of the year, but of course, as a seed stage company, we didn't have that much revenue to begin with. So that was kind of just normal. Um, and yeah, we've grown from 10 people at the beginning of the year to 20 now. Um, and a lot of that is just, we're trying to operationalize these processes because what we've stumbled upon here is people need help with their mobile QA, but how do we actually deliver that product and that service to them? We're still figuring out the best medium, the best processes for that. And like, how frequently are they releasing? What kinds of tests are they hoping to run? I think there's a lot that we're looking to learn. And so by going to market and really trying to get a wide range of customers from different industries, we have customers in the social networking space. We have e-commerce customers, large companies and small companies alike. And so all of that feedback is really important as we shape and hone our ideal customer profile. And so internally in the company, a lot of my time is spent focused on really figuring out sales, uh, you know, building out the team, hiring and recruiting for that. Um, but you know, we've already, you know, I'm very grateful to have an amazing leadership team where our engineering function is pretty stable. We have, you know, a growing customer success function as well, and our operations team, which does all the wrangling of executing tests, making sure there's enough phones, enough robots supervising the technology, giving feedback to engineering. Like there are a lot of moving parts and it's very exciting to know that like, I actually can't even succinctly describe all of those things because um, you know, our leadership team takes care of a lot of that and it allows me to then focus on the important parts of the business, which in this case are you know, sales. And so we're looking to target growing mobile engineering teams and companies out there where if you have a mobile app and you're currently having to do a lot of manual QA, either because you haven't had time to build automation suites or you've found that automation suites don't cover everything and you end up having to do manual testing anyway. Um, I think Mobot is a, is a good sweet spot for those companies that you know, are looking to augment their testing process. And we wanna find as many of those as possible and learn from them and use that to improve our technology and improve the platform for everyone involved. Well. You you talked about the size of the team has, has doubled. So, um, you know, you're doubling the size of the team and that's tricky to do in any typical year. Never mind global pandemic where people are hiring people remotely, onboarding and all these things. And, you know, you're trying to build a company and a culture. So what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs that are, you know, figuring stuff out. Like, you know, we've got an initial foundation team. Now we got to double in size and how do we do this, especially in these, you know, crazy, insane times. I will definitely be honest. I think this is probably the hardest year of my life. And Mm -hmm. I think it's feeling that burden of knowing that I'm responsible for, you know, 20 families, you know, well-being and and happiness, you know, that's that's a part of it. And that I think that is something that probably when I was starting the company out, I didn't realize the magnitude of that burden. And if you had told me that I would be starting a company during a pandemic, hmm, I don't know if I would have planned this quite the same way. Maybe um, wait till the pandemic's over. <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, 
But I do think that like having, you know, good thought partners, you know, in the board that we have, the investors we have, the leadership team that we have, you know, mapping out sort of like, what is our vision for the company? Who are the people do we need? Who, who do we need to accomplish that vision? And a lot of the conversations we had earlier this year was just that, like, we believe that people need mobile QA testing, even during a pandemic, more than ever, people are using their phones. And so now is not a time to sort of like, shirk away and like, you know, downsize or, you know, try to change gears. Like we actually saw that our customers were growing more with us, trusting us more. Um, you know, new deals are hard, but I think seeing the growth with our existing customers and the trust that they placed in us, we just felt like there is something here that we should invest further in. And so we did actually raise a seed extension during COVID uh, to be able to enable our team to continue to grow um, and, and feel comfortable taking that risk. And part of it is we also believe we have a competitive advantage here. Um, you know, it's really hard to start a hardware company. It's also harder to start a hardware company during COVID. And so for us, you know, we have this head start, like let's, you know, double down on product development and keep going at it. Um, and, you know, we've also seen that like, this allows us to then have a much better product you know, coming out of 2021, um, coming into 2021, that we'll be able to show to customers and really impress them with just, we've learned all of this from our existing customers and now we can take that to the market. The other thing that I noticed is you, you've you done a, a fair amount of, of media. So, uh, you know, Mashable, Forbes 30 under 30, you know, you've done a lot of demo days, public speaking. So uh, what advice would you give to, to founders on that of how to you know, get traction with the media or, you know, just being on the radar for journalists and, and being able to, you know, do well, you know, publicly speaking? Yeah, I think there's a time and place for that. Um, but the if you are actively looking to be involved with you know, more media or public speaking opportunities, say yes to as many opportunities as possible. Doesn't matter if it's a small publication or a large one, um, you know, be more active on professional social networks. I think LinkedIn is a big opportunity these days. But yeah, back in the day, like for getting the word out of Sun Saluter and the work that we were doing with our global nonprofit, I would just say yes to every opportunity possible um, and not really be worrying about, you know, I think, Obviously, you can sort of be more, uh, you know, selective later on when there's more opportunities than you have time for. But I think in the early days, you know, just really being open to helping um, and sharing your vision with whoever will listen is an important part of that process. But I will also say in the time since, I think, you know, uh, our, our media and society really likes to sort of like celebrate people before they've done stuff. And I actually think that really messed with my head as a young entrepreneur where I was being recognized for all this stuff that I hadn't actually done yet. And so a lot of the approach that I've taken for Mobot is I really want to make sure we're delivering value. Um, we're, we're proving that there's something that we're offering to our customers, that we're building this. We have this vision, this, this unique vision for how we want mobile testing to be done and how product development for mobile should be done. And so I've spent a lot of time kind of just like, you know, focused inward and focused internally on building a great company um, and have been more quiet on the media front. And that has also been healthy, I think, as a founder, because you kind of get caught up in 
you know, who's who and what's what and what other companies are doing. And like, you know, you look on LinkedIn and someone's raising another series B or C or D or E or F every day. And it can be a unicorn so every day. Like, ah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it gets you down sometimes because you're like, what am I doing wrong? Am I too slow? Like what is going on? Like, am I on the right track? And I think, you know, there's a time and a place to be focused externally on that stuff, but there's also, you know, I think for mental health reasons, insanity reasons, like a good time to also like know to stay focused on like, this is my vision. This is the company that I want to start. I know what we need. And like, I'm going to build a great team and just like build something amazing. And then, you know, I think it's a, it's a balance. Like you shouldn't like build things in a silo for like five years and then go out there. There should be, you know, a balance, like generating revenue while you build product is extremely important. And that's what we try to do at Mobot. But I think, you know, I try not to skew one way or the other. We've been talking about testing of uh, mobile apps. So what are the three apps that you can't live without? I uh, surprisingly just use like pretty normal apps, <laughs> nothing special. Um, I of course use Gmail for just managing my email on the go. I also, you know, Slack is a big part of how we run our business. Um, so we actually have shared Slack channels with our customers where we deliver test reports, we're discussing bugs and helping them and supporting them as a part of the, the service element that we provide. Um, so I check Slack a lot and um, I, I play Pokemon Go. So that's, mm. that's on my phone. Awesome. Well, how about outside of, out of work of building a company? I know there's probably not a lot of time, but when you do have some time, what do you do like to do for fun? Yeah, I spend a lot of time with my wife and uh, we have a rescue pug. Uh, she's 13, um, the pug. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, we, we take a lot of road trips, especially during the pandemic. We, we drive upstate from Manhattan and then, um, you know, spend some time hiking, biking. You know, I, I think especially during the pandemic, it's kind of made me realize that like, I want to build an amazing company, but family is also important. And like striking that work-life balance is really critical. Also something I'm actively working on, easier said than done. But um, yeah, I think it's forced a lot of us to really reassess our priorities. So it's kind of the silver lining to this year. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's just been an eye-opening year and you kind of do think differently, but well, Eden, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, walk us through your background and everything that you've been working on throughout your career. And, you know, here's to uh, Mobot being a, a major anchor company. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.